very much. Uh, if you have been with us, uh, you have seen over the last several days uh, in our revival services a man by the name of Brother Paul Bernard. If you haven't been with us, uh, then just give, let me give you a little information about him. He pastors a church that he planted, that he started uh, in McGee, Mississippi. Uh, it's, the name of the church is Overflow Church. Uh, and it's a name that's used because there seemed to have been a need in the area uh, for people who were not being uh, ministered to or, or connected to or, or something. For some reason, the local established church had been missing uh, a lot of individuals in that area. And so Brother Paul and some others had a, a heart for the people in that area, and they started a church and a living room. And, and you, as you heard him, if you were here, uh, it has grown. to they'll, they'll have three Sunday morning services this morning uh, and have somewhere between five and 700 people there between the three services. And so God has taken a group of people that were small in number in a living room and has really grown them. And so uh, if you are here or if you just hear that, you may, as I, as others, begin to start thinking, wow, that's a, that's a pretty amazing feat that has taken place. And this guy must be amazing. And uh, these people must be amazing. And uh, there's a lot of growth taking place there. And so how can we have an overflow church? Now, I know preachers aren't supposed to say that, and you're not supposed to say that. We're not supposed to admit that. Uh, but really, we find ourselves thinking that, don't we? How can we have an overflow church? Well, let me, let me just point something out to you this morning. That can be a wrong question, or that can be the right question. And so we need to take a look at that this morning about how we can be an overflow church. Overflow church uh, is doing a wonderful ministry in the area in which they're in. But I want to tell you, we are not overflow church. But yet we can be an, an overflow church. There have been many studies that have, been taken, that have taken place concerning church attendance. This has happened all the time. It's been going on forever. But especially of late, as you see church attendance seeming to drop further and further off. There's lots of studies that take place, and people like me like to read those studies and like to think about those studies and hear the statistics in those studies and then come back and tell you things sometimes you don't even care to hear. So I'm going to try to keep it to the things that you do care to hear, and I want to tell you a few things about some of these studies. We sometimes see church attendance declining, and we find ourselves in the church blaming the sinful world around us. Blaming the sinful world around us. And this takes place. You, you uh, have heard this, and maybe you have been a participant in this, and I admit that I have as well, uh, that you, you find uh, something going wrong in the congregation that you're in, and maybe there's not as many people there used to be sort of thing, and you start blaming the sinful world in which we live. Oh, it's just, it's just tough these days. Everybody's a sinner, and it's terrible, and, and uh, the morality level has gone way down, and all this sort of thing. But yet we neglect the fact that when the New Testament church in the early stages of its existence, as we see in the New Testament unfolding, when we see it exploding onto the scene, and when I say exploding, I'm not talking about 14, 15 years they went from uh, a few in a living room to uh, five or 700. I'm talking about explosion. One day there were 300 that got saved. An explosion onto the scene. And during this time, during this explosion of the New Testament church, the morality level was so low. They were in a sinful culture. It was so multicultural that there were gods, quote-unquote, from all over the known world at the time in those areas where this church was exploding. There were people who were great pagans. They were living for themselves homosexuality, there was uh, sinfulness in every form, all of these things were taking place, and yet we see the church explode onto the scene. 
So we need to be careful not to simply blame the world around us and the culture around us for why church attendance has declined. We also tend, if we're not careful, to blame younger generations for not stepping up to the plate. And then also there's the blaming of the older generation for not creating the space for younger people to serve and minister and lead. We find ourselves doing this. We blame music types. We blame the government. We blame the pastor. That one's my favorite. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> that was a joke. Woo, y'all with me? All right. Or we blame other leaders. Sometimes we blame the, the proverbial ostrich. Uh, sometimes, excuse me, we are the proverbial ostrich with our head in the sand, not willing to look at the fact that the church is declining attendance and that we're in trouble. I venture to say that many churches around the world, in, the, in America especially, it takes a long time of being in trouble before people are able to recognize that we're in trouble. And why is that? There are some things that studies show that the reason for that is because we're not ready to acknowledge and, and, and address the decline because if there's decline, then there seems to be something that needs to change or something that has changed that needs to change back in order for this to stop. So we're not ready to address those things. Maybe it's because leaders in the church, pastors and others in the church, Sunday school teachers and deacons and whatever the case may be, maybe it's because they have given up on the thought of growth. Well, it's just never going to get any better and the golden years are behind us and, and the good old days are gone. Young people have left. It's not going to get any better. Maybe it's because we see that lots of other churches are failing in the same way. And we think, you know what? Everybody's dealing with this. It's not going to get any better. Everybody's struggling in the same way that we are. Might I remind you that we had a pastor come in here and preach a set of services that is doing five to 700 this morning in a warehouse building. <laughs> so we can pretend as though everyone is seeing decline, but that's just not the case. And even if it were the case, it is no reason for us to relax our mission that we've been called to. And so we blame all of these sorts of things. And we, we fail to look at the things that are going on, sometimes because maybe there's enough money in the bank to pay the bills, and we think, hey, as long as we can hang on, we'll be okay. But I have some questions for you this morning. Question number one is, are you satisfied if we have to see the doors of this church house closed in 10 to 20 years? Because I'm not. And are, are, you, are you still of the thought, of the belief, that God can, is, and will grow His church. Because I am. Very much so. So this morning, we've got to see how to be an overflow church. I didn't ask Brother Paul if I could use their name over and over this morning, so y'all don't tell him, okay? How can we be an overflow church? Let me tell you some things that this doesn't mean. I told you we're going to start a little different. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to stay, we're going to get into the Word in a moment, but we're, we're going to stay back just a few more minutes. Let me tell you some things that this doesn't mean when I say how can we be an overflow church. Because as I've already mentioned, it does not mean how can we be overflow church in McGee, Mississippi. That's their context and it's not ours. That's the way that God has called them to minister in certain specific ways and it's not the way God has called us to minister in some certain specific ways. Now there is great commonality between us that God's called us to, but there are specifics in some certain ways that God has placed on their leadership, on their heart, and it's kind of their thing. 
And we, God has given us our things. Now we have a commonality in our calling, and we have a commonality on who we are to love, who we are to be willing to bear with, and all those sorts of things. We're going to see that in the text this morning. But we have a specific calling as White Oak Baptist Church, and we're not going to try to be anyone else except for who God has called us to be. And so that's not what it means. It, it, it does mean, how can we as the church in White Oak be a welcoming, loving, don't care what the naysayers say, gospel-centered, radically changed, Holy Spirit-empowered church? How can we look like that? Not like overflow, but like Jesus. This does mean how can we as the church in White Oak get past preferences and get to people? How can we as the church in White Oak get over religion and get to reach? Can we as the church in White Oak get beyond self and get to serving? How can we as the church in White Oak get through hurt and get to health? And how can we, careful now, get away from wine and to winning the loss to Christ? There are some things there that I think we can identify, not simply in us as white oak, but us as individuals. Don't ever think that I stand before you and say, hey, y'all need to get right. The Lord's been impressing on my heart how I have failed in so many ways. But you know what? I'm grateful for that. Because I know God's not through with me. And if we would recognize as a church even that we have failed in some ways, we would know that God's not through with us. And I know that for a fact that He is not through with us as White Oak Baptist Church in this community on this hill. And can I tell you what's been going over and over and over and over in my mind? You know, from the beginning, I'll say it probably till I leave here, y'all run me off one, that we want to be a church that's rooted in the Word, growing in Christ, and bearing much fruit for the glory of the Father. Can I tell you one way we're going to be able to do that? It's got to be present for us to be able to do that. We're going to be a welcoming church. All this week, while Brother Paul was preaching, all this week, this little small little phrase kept rolling through my mind. If this is not us, we're never going to see God do what He wants to do in and through us. You're welcome at White Oak. You see, because I know this to be true, whether it's true or not, I know this to be the perception. There have been many people that I have talked to personally that feel as though we're not welcome at White Oak. Now, I've told you before, is oftentimes not reality. But the problem is, it is their reality, and it's exactly what they believe with all of their being. And if it's not true, then let's show them that it's not true. You're welcome at White Oak. I won't, can I, look, I, I'm not good with motivational speaking. Can I just get you to help me, though, real quick? Let's practice, because this is going to be our mantra, okay? Let's practice. You are welcome at White Oak on three. Maybe you've never said this before. You need to put it in your vocabulary. You ready? One, two, three. You're welcome at White Oak. Can I tell you what I, I know to be true? I know without any hesitation or doubt in my mind, if we are a nice people, if we are a welcoming people, if we are a kind people, if we are a, 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 a people that are open to, to folks that are messed up, we can still fail. You didn't think I was going there, did you? We can still fail. 
It's not simply about being welcoming. It's about the gospel. It is about honoring God with who we are. It, is, it has gospel implications because if people don't think that we care and can see it very clearly, if we do or not, then they're never going to care what we know. And that is how to be reconciled to a holy and just God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So here is what I want us to know. We've got to get away from those things that are crippling us and get to being the church that God has called us to be. And part of that, simply, you say, that's preacher, that's too small and simple. It's not profound enough. I'm not a very profound guy. But if you would have such an attitude, you see, it's easy to say it. If you would have such an attitude about yourself, if we as a church would have such an attitude about ourselves that you genuinely, you are welcome at White Oak, then things are going to begin to change. Not overnight, most likely. God can do what He wants to. But can I tell you this? It took a lot of years for people to get the impression that they weren't welcome. It may take many years for them to get the impression that they are. And don't get me wrong. There's no one in here. And if you are, don't tell me. <laughs> I don't want to be mad at you. There's nobody in here that's like, man, those folks ain't welcome here. I, I, don't, I don't want people to come in here. I've got it just like I want it. I know that's not the attitude. But whether we believe that or not, it can sometimes be conveyed in the way that we act. So, I have the answer. How are we going to be an overflow church? How are we going to be a welcoming church? How are we going to love on people the way God has called us to love? I have the answer. Are you ready? Write it down. Are you ready? Here it comes. We must please others. I just lost some of you. Now, wait a minute. Please others. That don't sound right. Well, look, I'm going to be LeVar Burton. You don't have to take my word for it. Turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. While you're thinking, whoa, preacher, wait a minute. You're getting this one wrong. I want you to see in God's Word that God tells us to be people pleasers and how we've distorted what that means. And we need to get back to the, genu uh, the, the, gen the genuineness. Is that a word? I struggle sometimes. <laughs> the genuineness of that meaning, people pleasers. Because we certainly, to be an overflow church, must be a congregation that pleases others. In this passage of Scripture, we're going to read, we're going to read the, the beginning there of chapter this was written by Paul. A, he's a servant of Christ Jesus, it said in Romans 1.1. 1, 1. And we know that he wrote this letter to a church in Rome, to the, to the church in Rome. Uh, all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, it says in Romans 1.7. Uh, but we know that God is the author. He is the one who, who breathed this out through Paul. It is his word. In Rome, there were some Jewish Christians who were not wanting to give up certain ceremonial aspects of their religious heritage. There were things that they were doing that they didn't want to give up that were really tied to the old covenant. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't living in their freedom in Christ. There were some things there that were very Jewish-like rather than being Christ-like, but they were non-essential things. How do we know that? Because uh, God through Paul is telling people uh, not to worry about those things. And so uh, others were being ridiculed because they were not exercising their freedom, and some were being ridiculed because they were living uh, in those religious rites. And so they were focusing on things that didn't matter in the whole scheme of things, things that really didn't 
chapter. And in the New American Commentary, it says the church does not exist as a judiciary body to make pronouncements on issues that in the long run will prove to be of no real consequence. Let me shorten that up for you. We ain't supposed to be thinking about and worrying about and making judgments about those things that don't really matter in the whole scheme of things. That's not the purpose of the church. It never has been, it never will be, and if we, should put, if we have that, we need to make sure that we're putting that aside because that's not what we are. So I propose uh, that we, the Americanized church, have gotten really good, though, at doing this. We've gotten really good at focusing on the things that do not matter. We're really good at it. Sometimes we're so good at it, we don't know that we're being good at it. I'll name some things, you see if they ring a bell. How long one's hair can be is something that we focused on. For girls, it needs to be longer. For guys, it needs to be shorter. We focused on that before. Maybe we don't do it now, but we have. We've there. You know people, possibly personally, that have harped on how long someone's hair should or should not be. It's things that in the end really do not matter. Uh, tattoos, can they be visible on the body of a believer? Suits and ties, are they required? Dresses or pants? Now, that's not about guys. We're not wearing dresses. But if you don't know this, and a lot of you do, because a lot of you got more gray hair than I do, I'm sorry. But there was a time when this issue of dresses and pants was a big deal in the Baptist church. You better not walk up in the Baptist church on a Sunday morning with a pair of pants on if you were a female. Things that weren't necessarily essential. The duration of a service, uh uh-oh. Who put that there? The style of music that is sung. Uh-oh. The church has gotten good at focusing thing on things that don't We've gotten good at it. We really have. Uh, but it's not something that we should be patting ourselves on the backs for. The faithful congregation is the congregation who, instead of thinks, thinking of their own way, pleases others. Let's read from Romans chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. God's Word says, this is truth, it is His Word. Verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Together you may be with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and God that it speaks to our every need. Lord, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword and it will cut. Father, help us to know that that's not a verse of scripture that simply tells us that it's what it's supposed to be, but reminds us that sometimes it's difficult to hear the truth. And so, Lord, I pray, Father, that we would align ourselves with your word. Lord, that it would not be optional, but God, that we would follow you wholeheartedly. Give me grace and mercy and and speak, use me to speak this morning, God. May you be glorified in Jesus Christ's name, the church said. Amen. Amen. So this really does go against the fiber of our being, the teaching of our culture. It 
fiercely bucks against our flesh, does it not? We are to be people pleasers. We are to please others. If we're to be people that, that truly bear much fruit, we will be people pleasers. But before I lose you, I, I want to remind you that I started out on some things that I did not mean. I need to continue them. This does not mean pleasing man rather than pleasing God. Please hear me. Don't, don't leave out from this place and say, oh, everything is subjective. <laughs> we just need to make sure that we're pleasing whomever we're in front of at the time. That is not what I'm saying because it's not what God's Word says. This is not a pleasing others versus pleasing God. This is absolutely not a pleasing others versus pleasing God. This is a pleasing God by pleasing others. Pleasing God by pleasing others. When it comes down to, are you going to obey God rather than man? It is very clear in the Word. We are to obey God. Hands we should be willing to be ridiculed because of our faith and our stance on the gospel. We should be willing to have people naysay about us because we know that we're standing faithfully on the truth of the Word. Those things are non-optional. And I'm so grateful for the way God laid those things on Brother Paul's heart. Very timely for me, and I believe wholeheartedly as your pastor, very timely for us as a congregation. And so we are not saying that we're going to do this versus honoring God and pleasing God. First and foremost is our responsibility to honor and please and obey our Heavenly Father. So that's not what this means. Therefore, we will not change what the Gospel says because someone's feelings got hurt. We will not change what the Gospel says because someone feels as though it is contradictory to health of the community or because someone thinks that they have a different idea and we should honor all ideas, we're not going to change the gospel because it's not ours to change. This also does not mean that we'll never speak truth that cuts. God's Word says, as you heard me reference in my prayer, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's truth cuts us like a knife at times. If you attended the revival services and not been cut, maybe you didn't hear what I was hearing. The truth divides. <laughs> it goes against our flesh. It is true. Our flesh wants to be about self. It teaches us otherwise. And so it does not mean, pleasing others does not mean that we're never going to speak truth. In fact, that would be contrary to what God has called us to do. We are to speak truth, but most certainly truth in love. So we're not going to change the word in any shape or fashion. And this does not mean that we're never going to confront a brother or sister in his or her sin. Because accountability is needed among brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to walk through it the right way. You see, we read that list and we're like, wait a minute, we're not going to change the gospel, we're not going to ever speak truth that cuts, and, and we're not going to confront our brother and sister. Wait a minute, we've been people-pleasing already! <laughs> Oh, guys, that was, it's not even 12 yet. I'm afraid that's the truth at times. For the sake of, of quote-unquote reaching out, we want to soften what the gospel message says. For, for the sake of, of quote-unquote not ostracizing others, we want to soften what the truth of the Scriptures say. For the sake of not being an 
in, in, in some type of riff with our brother or sister in Christ, hey, that's none of my business. I'm not going to say anything about that. I know they're living like they ain't going to heaven. <laughs> I know they're living like they ain't never heard a, 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 a message preached. But I'm not going to say anything. This is actually what the wrong version of people pleasing looks like. But God's Word teaches us that we are to be people pleasers. But the problem is, this isn't really even the, the issue. You see, people don't leave churches because of things that are essential. There's been study after study done as the reason that people leave churches or the reason that churches split as well. And, and, and it's never, hardly ever, the, the numbers are over overwhelmingly in the majority in one category that people leave churches not over things that are essential but things that are non-essential here's some real reasons that people left churches we believe that we should have pews in the worship center rather than chairs people have literally left churches because we changed this out for chairs can i tell you just a short caveat right here one of the most beautiful pictures i've seen is a cooperating church that I've ever seen was in England. You know where the church is dead? <laughs> no, it's not. In England. They had one room, basically. There's a couple little rooms back here, upstairs, downstairs, little kitchen, little Sunday school class, little office. But they had one room for everything else. It wasn't a fellowship hall and a worship center and a children's wing and a youth wing and all these sorts of things. There was one room. And they had folding chairs. Not Hey, not these good padded chairs that we here buy and purchase in a new and put in a new worship center. They had folding chairs. And you know what they did on Sunday morning the first time I was ever there? We went in. They had a worship service together. And they said, hey, they made an announcement. The pastor afterwards made an announcement. Hey, we're going to have a kids club in here, holiday club in here uh, starting this evening. And so if you can help us. And it was like ants. Everybody just, and it was set up for children's club. It was amazing. They just did it. They used what God had blessed them with, and they used it for His glory. And instead, what I see time and time again is people in the American church, they, give, they, they use what God has blessed us with, and they shrine it off. <laughs> no, nope, can't touch that area. It's not about this. This is going to be gone one day. It's going to be nothing. God has blessed us with this facility to glorify Him and to reach this community. A place that we can gather comfortably to worship on Sunday morning. Praise the Lord. Grateful for it. Hey, it's cooler this morning. You've been at revival services. It's been hot. Wasn't sure if it was just the air went out or the Lord was getting on me too much. I didn't know. Praise the Lord, we've been blessed to use it for His glory. Other reasons people leave the church, non-essentials. Should the flags be present, or should they not? I'll go a step further. Should they be up front, or should they be in the back? Should they be out there? People have literally left the church over where the flags were positioned or not positioned in the worship center. Hymns versus praise songs. We don't even have to go there. We know that. <laughs> Organ versus keyboard. Drums or no drums. Argument over the length of the pastor's beard. I mean, I know a lot of you are like, no, none. But, I mean, the length of it? Okay, it's okay, but it can only be... We're going to measure it every Sunday. 
People leaving the church. Argument over, uh, an argument that went to a vote in a business meeting, this is just sad, uh, to vote to decide whether or not to have a clock in the worship center. Now watch it. Watch it. I know. I've given someone an idea on that one. A petition to have all church clean shaven, and they must not have been Baptists because we all know that once shaved, always shaved. Come on, guys. That was a good one. If you didn't understand it, I'll explain it after. People left the church over the Lord's Supper having cran grape. Brother, I didn't know that, Mr. Larry, when I suggested that. I didn't know that people had left the church over it. Having cran grape juice instead of grape juice at the Lord's Supper. People left the church house. Some of you wouldn't even know. But some of those people didn't know either. But when they got told, they left. <laughs> That's heresy. People leave because they don't like the pastor, they don't like the music, they don't like the color of the carpet in the nursery. Non-essentials. And we have forgotten the essentials of the Word. Look in Romans 15 with me real quick. I know I'm running out of time, but I'm going to move quickly. Point number one, if we're going to be a people-pleasing church the way God desires us to be people-pleasing, not the way the world has hijacked this phrase. Point number one, we need to, people-pleasing means bearing with one another. Verse one says, we who are strong have an obligation. We are bound to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Bear here is the same Greek word that is used in Galatians 6, 1 through 2 that says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you, be lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the same word that is translated in Galatians 6 where it's speaking about sin. It's not just, hey, someone's a little weaker in their faith in this particular area. No, it's talking about people who are believers who are in sin. And I echo the words of my brother in Christ Paul that says we will never be able to bear with those that are outside of this place. We will never be able to love those that are outside of this place if we are unwilling to love on and bear with the ones that we call our own. And instead, you know when he said, he said what they do at their church when somebody falls into sin is they pounce on them. I thought, yeah, we do too. <laughs> Wait, uh, that's not exactly what he meant. Pounce on them in order that we might lift them up and bear with them and walk with them through that. Word says be careful. Watch out lest you too fall into temptation. Watch out. Hey, don't you struggle with, with lust in your life? You struggle with pornography? You're not the one to be walking through that with the other one. You struggle with alcohol, you're not the one to be walking through that with the other one. Not by yourself. But we are to bear with them. <laughs> and hey, when we're in the position, we want people to bear with us. We, we want people to be compassionate toward us and patient with us and, and bear with us. We are going to be people pleasers. We need to make sure that we are bearing with those who are a part of White Oak Baptist Church and therefore anyone else who would be willing to come into this place or be in this community or whatever the case may be. Anybody that we're loving on. See, the, 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 the point here is not that you just bear with brothers and sisters in Christ. The point is, if you can't bear with those that are closest to you in the blood of Jesus, then it's difficult to bear with those who are not. So get that right first and you can start learning to do the other but we need to bear with 
others. Let me tell you, there's a, a pastor by the name of John Piper, and he, he pointed this out. I, I didn't know it, but he pointed this out, and I heard a sermon one time that he preached. And he told, he, he says, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so I don't know for certain, but he says that this word bear, that this is the same type language that is used in, uh, in Matthew 4.21 that says Jesus, it's the time when Jesus is calling disciples unto himself, and he gets to James and John. And he's calling James and John. Where did he see them? He saw them in the boat with their father Zebedee. And they were in the boat, they had been fishing, and they were in the boat and they were mending their nets. They were repairing their nets. And John Piper says that this mending of their nets is the same language, the same word that is used in this bearing with one another in their burdens. This same word that is, that is used, excuse me, with this uh, uh, restore, restoring someone in the spirit of gentleness. And this bearing has this idea of being able to bear with them and restore them to right fellowship with to see them restored to right fellowship with the Lord. We know it's by the power of God, but we see that restoration taking place, that this same language is the language that is used for mending together those nets. The toils of sin will tear us apart. The toils of sin will, bear, will break us down as individuals and tear us apart as those who are netted together in this congregation. And we are to bear with and see people restored, coming together and knitting and weaving those nets back together. This is the language. Bear with one another. Can I tell you something very clearly? You can't do that from far away. You've got to go to people. You've got to get there with the net. If we're going to be a people-pleasing church, we've got to bear with others. If you want to overflow, bear with them. Also, point number two, if we're going to be a people-pleasing church, this means growth. Look at verse two. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This goes with that repairing as well. But with regard to others, we should always, always be looking to contribute to their spiritual growth. Build them up. It's so easy for us to tear down. It doesn't take any effort for us to tear down. It doesn't take a, a strong man of God, a strong woman of God to tear down. It takes strength in the Lord to build up. But yet it's not all that difficult. Who are those people in your life that build you up? If you don't have anybody, you need some people. But you know, you recognize it. Maybe it catches you off guard sometimes. Someone builds you up. And I'm talking about puffing you up, making you, somebody out, out, making you out to be somebody you're not. I'm talking about building you up in the truth of what the Scripture says that you are and being able to bear with you and love on you and care for you and walk with you and all those sorts of things. Who is building you up? You see, the, the Word of God tells us that if we're going to be people pleasers, that we are to please not ourselves, but please our neighbor. We've already been into who our neighbor is. We could think about that logically, where our neighbor is our neighbor in our community. It is a neighboring communities. It is neighboring counties. It is neighboring states, neighboring countries, neighboring worlds. I, I don't know if there's aliens or not. Who's your neighbor? Jesus points out who the neighbor is. There's no, there's no clause that allows us to put a couple of people in this particular area and say, nope, I don't have to worry about them. <laughs> it's not there. That doesn't matter about skin tone. That doesn't matter about money they make. It doesn't matter about who their mom and them are. It doesn't matter about anything. There's nobody we can put in that clause 
and say, we don't have to worry about them. They're not our neighbor. So we are to build them up, seeking for their good and their upbuilding, even if they hate you. You see, the genuine believer is not going to hate you. They may live in a way which seems hateful. They may be angry at you. They may be mad at you. They may treat you poorly. But here's the deal. I see over and over and over through the New Testament that the Lord's compassion is so great that even the people that would nail Him to the cross, He would love and spill His blood for. No one took His life. He laid it down that we might have life. And He bared with us and He continues to do so. Don't start believing that you've got to wait and see the people that are worth the bearing with and worth the building up and worth the encouragement of. They're not there. You ain't neither. Neither am I. So we're to build up. We don't have time to dive into what tearing down and building up looks like that much, but... We are very well aware of things that are not for the benefit of the believer. Don't give someone anti-gospel, God-centered, quote-unquote wisdom as a believer. It's foolish. Happens all the time. Well, I know the Bible says such and such, but he's a sorry rascal anyway. Don't give people, quote-unquote, wisdom. Don't guide them. Don't lead them in ways that are not of the Scriptures. That is not building up, whether you think it's being compassionate toward them or not. Again, we don't have time to dive into all the building up and tearing down. People-pleasers are bearing with others. Overflow churches are growing, building up. Also, people-pleasers, it takes humility. This is going to be the rest of our time here this morning very quickly. Pleasing others takes humility. You can look at that whole section of Scripture, verses 1 through 7, and you see that, it, that off the page jumps the word that's not there, and that's humility. It takes humility for us to bear with those who are struggling. It takes humility for us to not please ourselves, but to please others, put others before ourselves. It takes humility to live like Jesus lives as it keeps going. For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for your instruction and through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such a harmony with one another. If you're going to live in unity and harmony with one another, it takes humility. And so for us to be people pleasers, we need to know that it takes humility. So are you living humbly to please others or to please yourself? Here's the test, very quickly. Proof number one, measure your generosity. How much do you give away? Money, sure. But really that oftentimes becomes the easiest thing. Oh, we'll just throw a little money at it. <laughs> We've got a little extra. But how much are you giving away? How generous are you with your time? I will take time to go to my brother or sister in Christ. I will take time to walk with them and hurt with them and let them cry on my shoulder and build them up. I will take that time and use that effort that is necessary to do those things. How generous are you with your time? It's going to prove whether or not you're living humbly and being people pleasers. Proof number two, measure your compassion. How compassionate are you? You say, well, I hurt in my heart towards others. I'm going to say like James, show me. <laughs> Might as well be Missouri, the show me state, because that ain't going to fly. It doesn't fly with you, it doesn't fly with me. 
If your compassion is genuine, compassion that is genuine always results in action. Always. In our Sunday school lesson in, in the student ministry this morning, it was talking about Jesus feeding the 5,000. We've walked through it on Sunday night already. It says that Jesus, when He heard, He goes off to a solitude place. What He had heard was that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And so in a day where He wanted to just focus in on Himself if He were us, we wanted to say, push away from everybody and focus on ourselves, and it's all about me, and I want to feel sorry for myself, and all these sorts of things. It says when He came up, He saw the crowds. He had compassion on them, and then He acted. He healed them. He fed them. He told them He was the bread of life. <laughs> compassion that is genuine always leads to action. Dare we not say that we have compassion on this community if we are not acting to love this community. Dare we not say we have compassion on a brother or sister in Christ who's struggling in sin, who's struggling in heartache, or whatever the case may be, if we are not willing to act in that compassion because it's not compassion. It is vain nonsense. It's just words. So, you measure your generosity, you measure your compassion, but in that same vein... Let me help you understand, and me as well, that the problem here is not just the lack of humility. The problem here is the presence of pride. You see, we begin to start saying, well, those people brought that on themselves. <laughs> they deserve that suffering. Well, very quickly, where did suffering come from? <laughs> suffering comes because of sin. Sometimes it's our own present or past sin, our stupidity. <laughs> Sometimes it's because we're in the presence of a sinful, fallen world. That's all of us, people. How dare we say people deserve that suffering? They don't deserve my compassion when we, in fact, deserve suffering, but we get compassion from God and from others. So even if they brought it on themselves, show compassion. And proof number three, measure your humility. I thought you were talking about humility. I am. I'm answering myself now. But what is your level of pride? Adrian Rogers, pastor that's gone on to be with the Lord, talked about pride a good bit. And one of the messages that he preached on pride, he, he said that, that pride was the most deceitful sin. It, it's so terrible. It's destroying the fabric of our destroying the fabric of our churches, all those sorts of things. And it's because people who are struggling with pride are really not struggling. A lot of times people don't even know they're struggling with pride. In fact, they're very proud of their humility. <laughs> See how that doesn't fit together? And he said, you know, the drunkard knows he's a drunkard. <laughs> you know, the one that struggles with, with lust knows that he struggles with lust. But the proud person oftentimes doesn't know that he's proud. And that's why it's so dangerous. And so he, he gave us a test about pride. And I want to give a couple to you and then I'm going to be finished. Are you a proud person or are you humble? Well, here's a couple of things. If you're proud, you are irritated when corrected for mistakes. If you're proud, you accept praise for things over which you have no control. If you're proud, you will not admit mistakes because there's always an alibi, there's always an excuse. You've always, 
on the, you're always on the side of being a victim. If you're proud, when there's disagreement, you have the stance of, I can get along without you. I don't need you. When you're proud, you have an ungrateful spirit for all that God has done. You refuse to take counsel and to learn from others. And he says, pride doesn't want more. Pride wants more than what other people have. See, it's not enough for us to be proud and want more. We just want, want, we want more of what somebody else has got. Or we can't be proud of. Can I tell you that even in our search to reach this community, we can find ourselves struggling with pride. We do it all the time, whether they know it or not. If we had a whole bunch of people in this church house, it would be real easy for me to look and say, look what I did. But that's not what it is. Agent Rogers goes on to say one more thing, and he says, we ought to be living as if Christ rose from the grave today and He's coming back tomorrow. How much compassion would you have on those that are lost and dying and bound for a sinner's hell if you were convinced of the resurrection as if it just happened before your eyes and if you were convinced that He is returning today? It would change the way we act, I think. It would change the way we live. It would change us to be humble and generous and bear with others. Can I tell you the reason why many people can't is that pride is to the point where they have never relinquished control to Jesus. They've joined a church. They've been through the waters. But they have never surrendered their life to Christ. There's no hope. That passage goes on and talks about the great hope that's in Christ. You read on through 13, there's some good stuff. But there is no hope for a people who do not have God as their God. So if you're here in this place this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, we're going to have a time of invitation. We're going to sing together. We're going to do the thing that we always do. But dare you not today do the thing that you've always done. Surrender your life to Jesus today. Surrender to Him knowing that He's the only hope for your forgiveness, for your life, for your, for your hope for today and your hope for tomorrow. He's the only way that can create in you and me that willingness to bear with and have compassion on and love others. He's the only one that can tear away at that pride as we walk in Him and deny our flesh. He defeated sin, death, and the grave. And He can take care of any problem you might have. But if you know that you know that you've been born again, I'm grateful for you and that you are my brother or sister in Christ and I want to bear with you as you bear with me and I want to be a people who are on top of this hill and people know you're welcome at White Oak. Starts with me.
starts with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. God, thank you that you can take things that are broken down and in shambles and make beautiful things. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Lord, that we would surrender to you afresh and anew. God, that we would recognize those areas in our life that we're being prideful. Lord, that we're not willing to love on and have compassion on those that are around us, much less those that are outside of this place. And Father, that you would be glorified in the, in the, the growing of your people in this place. Because I know, you know, that as we grow in our likeness and you and bearing with one another, Father, we're going to have a compassion for those that don't know you. God, help us to love you intimately and others intimately and be willing to go out from this place and love those that are lost and win them. Your word tells us to win the lost. God, it's only by your hand that someone can be saved. But Father, use us, we pray. In your perfect plan. God, grant us an opportunity to reflect on this now. Help us to respond to you. To never hesitate to do what you're